Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dialectic Podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shavastava, and I'm your host. And today we have with us Dr. Georgie Gardner, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Tennessee, and was previously the Andrew Fraser Junior Research Fellow at Oxford University. This year, she was awarded the Chancellor's Notable Woman Award from the University of Tennessee. Her work is broadly focused on epistemology and metaphilosophy. Hi, Dr. Gardner, how are you today? Oh, good, yeah, uh, feeling good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here with this podcast. Of course, thank you so much for your time and, and for being here today. Before we begin our discussion, um, although I did just kind of briefly go over your CV, um, for audience that may not know a lot about you, could you please provide a little bit more information on who you are, your background, your relationship to philosophy, um, and what philosophy means to you and how you kind of got involved in it? Sure, yeah. Well, maybe I'll start with the last one. How did I get into philosophy? So I'm from Britain, and in Britain, you apply to university, you apply to the subject, and it's pretty much the only subject you study. So you don't take a range of courses and then declare a minor, a major. You just like go there to study philosophy or maths or whatever it is. And in high school, I just really didn't want to narrow down. Like I wanted to keep a breadth of subjects as much as I could. And in Britain, we narrow down really fast, really early. But I wanted to keep doing maths and the sciences. But I also wanted to do sociology and economics and also the humanities, history and, and literature. I really didn't want to narrow down. And I thought philosophy would be a good way of not narrowing down. And I was right. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I kind of had that thought because I didn't really know what philosophy was as most high school students, you know, don't. But philosophy is really broad because you can do sort of logic and you can do the foundations of maths and you can do the philosophy of history or economics and you can also do philosophy of science and what, you know, what interpretation of physics. And then you can all do all kinds of things, literature. And so it really is a nice way to not, to avoid narrowing down. And, um, and I guess I also always just ask these questions that were like philosophical questions, so just always kind of the kinds of questions like about God and why is there something rather than nothing and about why, why be good, why be ethical and so on. So I was just always really drawn to philosophy questions without, you know, before I started to university. And one thing I tell my students is that philosophy has this very distinctive feature, which makes it a good one to study, which is that it's inescapable. So what I mean by that is like, if it's something like learning history or economics or physics or chemistry, you can just be like, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna form any chemistry beliefs. I'm just not gonna form any economics beliefs. I'm just not gonna learn any history, read any literature. You can do that. It would be a mistake. <laughs> be like you're sort of failing to enrich your life and maybe failing to sort of do your duty to learn like history as a citizen or something. But you can do it, it's possible. Whereas philosophy is not like that. It's like if you say, I'm never gonna learn any philosophy, you're already doing philosophy by sort of figuring out what, you know, you'd have to know what philosophy is so to avoid it. Or, oh, philosophy's all bunk, it's all useless, or no one ever makes any progress in philosophy, so it's not worth doing, you're already doing philosophy. And then also if you just think, what should I do? Why should I do it? What kind, who should I be? What traits should I have? What's worth it caring about? You're already doing philosophy. So it has this like deep inescapability. And so given that, I figure that it makes sense to sort of at least learn to do, you know, to do it well, <laughs> as opposed to really poorly, given that you have to do it. And I think there's one other, as a quick side note, I think there's one other subject that has that kind of inescapability or one other thing, and that's politics. Like you can't opt out of politics. So even to opt out of politics is itself a political stance. So philosophy and politics have this inescapability um, to them. So that's kind of how I got into to philosophy. And as for what my own work is, I mean, in a certain sense, this ties together what I was talking about, it's being broad and inescapable, is my own research kind of runs a gauntlet from very abstract to, so um, how to model epistemic value, epistemology, fancy pants word for theory of knowledge, but like knowledge, rationality, belief, justification, evidence. What is the nature? So I do this abstract stuff. What's the nature of understanding? What's the structure of epistemic virtue? And what's you know good about epistemic value? How do, should we model statistical inference in science? All the way to these really applied subjects. So the most recent essay that I've just been writing is how do we know that we're in love? 
Like when we, why do we think we know what love is? And our judgments about whether we're in love, like what, what makes them good ones or bad ones? Or, or similarly with, with queer and sexually attracted and so on, like in virtue of what do we know that we're queer and, and what, what makes us think that we, we sort of know what attraction is and what love is and so on. And then self-deception about things like rape. So when people uh, are raped and then they are in denial about that, what explains that? Or like if other harmful or costly beliefs, like my child is an alcoholic or I don't like my job or I'm bad at my job. Um, when people are in denial about those, how can we explain that? Um, and some work on some, uh, how do we conceptualize self-harm and sex, sex work and all these kinds of really applied topics. But most of what I do is in the middle of those two extremes. Most of what I do is somewhere between the really applied and the really abstract. And that's kind of what we're gonna be talking about today because legal epistemology is I mean, it, it can be done in various ways, but the way that I do it is really in the middle. It's applied, it's, it's epistemology applied to these um, uh, sort of social uh, institutions and social phenomenon. That's really interesting, especially kind of like the story of like learning, from, learning philosophy. I had, um, you know, I interviewed like another uh, Dr. Simon Brown, who's also from Britain. Um, and so he had also had like a similar way where he got, got interested into philosophy and then chose um, philosophy. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know, I think he was saying like they're called A-levels, I think, or like some sort of test or something like that um, mm -hmm. in Britain. And so like, that's, that's an interesting story because like, you know, in, in the United States, we don't have that limiting. We kind of have the luxury of like whenever we go into college, we have a luxury of classes that we we're allowed to take and we're allowed to move around in majors and in a lot of colleges. And so it's interesting to think that like, philosophy was the route towards doing that in an area where you're so, so like in your so um, you know trapped almost in, in, in kind of determining what you have to do for your future so like that's an interesting interesting way to think about philosophy because yeah plus philosophy um, you know is is quite literally inescapable um, you know by thinking you can escape it that's philosophy like you, you have to know you have to know philosophy in order to even even say those things and and definitely we're going to get into a lot of your uh, your research and kind of like that middle ground you're talking about about the abstract and on one far end and then um you know the applied and the other far end so we're going to get into the middle of that but before we do that um i do want to clarify some definitions with you um because you know we did mention that epistemology is like a fancy word for kind of theory of knowledge but what does uh, what exactly is legal epistemology, and what questions uh, is that field attempting to explore, and what is evidence in the context of legal epistemology? Because you know, when we're talking about law and just the legal field in general, evidence is something that's always like always uh, you know mentioned, right? It's you have to have evidence in order to kind of plead your case or literally do anything in terms of in legal field. So, what exactly does that mean in that field? Yeah, great. So. Um, yeah, good, important question. So what is legal epistemology? It's a really kind of um, flourishing, kind of exploding topic right now. Like very few people did it a few years ago and now a lot of people do it. And so basically it's looking at the intersection of law and epistemology. So epistemology is evidence, rationality, justification, when a belief's good ones. And the kind of legal cases that typically are looked, the kind of contexts that are looked at in legal epistemology tend to be trials, legal trials, so civil trials, criminal trials, so finding somebody criminally culpable or suing somebody. Um, there's other questions as well about police conduct and how should inquiries occur, um, but that's sort of in juries. And so the kinds of questions that are looked at in legal epistemology is things like what are legal standards of proof? So the big sort of the most well-known legal standards of proof is beyond reasonable doubt is used in a lot of jurisdictions for criminal conviction and um, proponents of the evidence is a, is a lower one used for civil cases. So what are they? Like, what do they mean? What does it mean to say the proponents of the evidence? So that's one big question in legal epistemology. Um, what kinds of evidence and reasons are allowed if we say trying somebody? And this relates to your question, well, what is evidence? Like, well, you have to show the evidence, what is that? And so evidence basically is like, what bears on the truth of a proposition? So if you're, you know, if you, it's like, is it uh, raining outside? Well, what's your evidence is like, is, is the things that will make it such that you should believe that it's raining outside. So make it more likely that it's raining outside. So having a look and seeing that, or somebody coming in with an umbrella is, is evidence that it's raining outside, especially if the umbrella is wet. But in law, what matters is the admissible evidence. So you can have all kinds of evidence that bears on the person's guilt or innocence, but it's never heard 
Partly maybe because they never found it. So like there is a witness and they, they really are reliable and trustworthy, but they're, they're deceased or they're in hiding or they're, they're an accomplice, so they don't wanna say. And so there's really good evidence, but it just never comes to light. There's also evidence that's inadmissible. And so suppose it was evidence found in a illegal search or evidence found under torture, then that might be the kind of evidence or it's hearsay evidence. So evidence of, of somebody told somebody who told somebody, but that person, you know, the original person is not there in court to be cross-examined, that's hearsay evidence. Um, those things are not admissible. So even if the, the lawyers know the evidence, they're not allowed to bring it up. And in fact, if, if it is brought up, the jury has to sort of pretend they don't know it, sort of try to isolate it off, partition it off and make their judgment based on something else. And so also there could be fairly conclusive evidence reported in the newspapers. But if that was inadmissible for some reason, then the jury is supposed to be able to, to say whether or not just the case brought in front of them with the admissible evidence in court uh, is reaches that threshold of the preponderance of the evidence. And so what kind of evidence is inadmissible? Oh, and notice, by the way, and we can, we'll come back to this, um, I think, is, is that it's not sort of, does the evidence mean that they're probably guilty it, or, you know, 100%, it's meeting that particular threshold, that beyond a reasonable doubt threshold. So what kinds of evidence are allowed and not allowed? Well, so there are these exclusion laws, uh, federal rules of evidence in the US. Um, articulates these exclusion rules. So one, for example, is character evidence. So evidence that the person has committed prior crimes is typically not admissible. It's admissible in some contexts. And so legal epistemology will ask, huh, well, is that kosher? <laughs> like, is there something wrong with, with not allowing that? Because suppose that the person is being um, tried for um, burglary and they've committed a loads of other burglaries in the past well doesn't that mean that it's more likely that they committed this burglary and so typically that evidence wouldn't be allowed unless it's allowed to show is per permitted to show something like they knew how to do that particular kind of complex you know dual theft or something like that so legal epistemology will look at like can there be epistemic reasons can, can they, so there might be moral reasons or political reasons or pragmatic reasons to not allow that like it's just not fair to try this person based on, you know, and let the jury sort of be biased by the fact that they've done all these other crimes. Because the jury might think, well, whether or not they did this one, they deserve prison time because of all the other ones. But legal epistemology can also ask, what well, is it epistemically rational? Are there actually good epistemic reasons, truth relevant reasons? Like maybe the other evidence that they've committed all these other crimes, the even if it's evidence that they committed this one, the juries will overestimate that. So though it does make it more likely they committed that burglary, but the jury will think, well, of course they must have committed that burglary as well. And so they overestimate the probative value of the evidence, the epistemic force of the evidence. So legal epistemology asks questions about profiling. So questions like, given that they're a uh, the defendant is a member of a demographic group, can that be used as evidence against them? So is the fact the defendant is male evidence that they committed the violent crime, for example. Um, and then sort of what is the presumption of innocence and questions about the whole structure of the legal system. So should we have an adversarial system where two lawyers duke it out, one against the other one, two legal teams that we have in America, or should it be more inquisitorial like they have in some European jurisdictions where the, the judge is the fact finder. So they do all the investigating and they decide and similar questions about things like expert witnesses. What kinds of expert witnesses should we allow? Well, the ones who are just providing, say, the science behind some evidence, like explaining DNA evidence or explaining fingerprint evidence. Well, what kinds of evidence and what kinds of experts and what which experts should be permitted? Because what if it was astrology evidence? Well, we might not want astrology evidence, for example, but why? So that's a kind of a collection that's a collection of the kinds of questions that legal epistemology will investigate okay that's really really interesting and you know kind of while you're saying all of this um i was just thinking in the back of my mind of like the johnny depp trial right now that's going on and kind of taking over the news in general like for example um you're talking about hearsay right like that's like there's been so many videos of like the lawyers talking about hearsay and not i don't think a lot of people actually know what it means um we're just kind of 
I say we, but like most people and like at least in the comments and stuff are just kind of laughing at the way in which it's said so frequently uh, in these cases. Um, so yeah, def that's like definitely like a really, you know, broad field. Like there's a lot of things to explore here. And like, I'm sure like I could probably be captivated like in just one section, like exploring just like maybe like the epistemology of like, like juries, like, which is which is a, which is like a question that we'll explore later. later. But um, definitely like a lot, a lot of, you know, cool questions to ask here, but I'm interested kind of in the way that your answers or at least your work uh, in your kind of uh, your theories or whatever is is conducted. So you mentioned previously that you're looking mostly at like trials, right? But is it a lot of analysis of different cases that have all like maybe in like way in the past and trying to correlate those to epistemology or is it always looking at different, maybe like looking at the current events that are going on with like, let's say the Johnny Depp trial and analyzing that through an epistemic lens and how like the legal teams are taking those through a kind of a theory of knowledge, um, you know, like picking up evidence or like punishment or race or confession or paradoxes that are present in specific cases that are going on right now and then correlating that um, to epistemologists. How does it necessarily work for, for you and your research? Yeah, great. So most of the legal, the most common pattern in legal epistemology is that there'll be some insight or debate or question in epistemology that then has bearing in the legal context. So an example is this lottery paradox. So I know that a very recent guest you had is Liz Jackson and she was talking about belief and credence. And so the lottery paradox came up, which is great. So the lottery paradox is something like you have an absolutely um, it doesn't even have to be massive for this example, but like a big lottery, loads of tickets. And then you have one ticket and you think, well, my ticket won't win because it's one of the chances. And so maybe you even throw it away before you get the results. or you assert to somebody, I didn't win the lottery. Or I won't win the lottery. And it seems like there's something wrong with that, something strange about that. Um, but that's a little bit puzzling to explain why, because given the evidence you have, the base rates, the fact that there's so many tickets and you just have the one ticket, it's exceedingly likely that it's true. Like really probably you won't win the lottery. And so the lottery paradox is basically explaining why it is some kinds of evidence seem to make it really probable that your belief is true and yet aren't the kind of thing that can justify certain actions like throwing the ticket away or asserting my ticket didn't win. You need some other kind of evidence like checking the results. And, uh, and it's a paradox because some of the other kinds of evidence, like assertion, like somebody telling you, oh, he, these are the results, then you can know on that, those grounds that your ticket didn't win. But they might actually be more likely to be misleading. Like it could well be that in that case, they told you the wrong numbers, they misremembered or something. But nonetheless, it's the kind of thing you can know based on. So that's a lottery paradox. Okay, well, that kind of evidence seems to have some bearing or some application. So that, that kind of debate has some application in legal cases. Why? Well, these like, Legal standards of proof, for example. So beyond reasonable doubt and preponderance of the evidence, what do they mean? Well, so preponderance of the evidence is usually glossed, I mean, almost always glossed as more likely than not. And in Britain, it's known as balance of the probabilities. That sounds a lot like at least 50% likely, like more than 50-50, more than a coin flip. And so it really invites this quantificational analysis, like this understanding of what legal standards of proof are, or at least proponents of the evidence as, as a number on like a, on the line between like zero and one, <laughs> between zero and 100, if you're doing percent chance, um, where proponents of the evidence is 50, and then beyond reasonable doubt is really high, like maybe 95%, something like that, 90, 95%, maybe 99%. And then some other legal standards of proof, like clear and convincing evidence, they're often glossed, they're in between proponents of the evidence and beyond reasonable doubt. So they're often glossed as like 70, 75%. And then there's lower ones like probable cause and reasonable suspicion, which govern police conduct. And then they say, well, they're even lower. They're like 20% or something. And, and maybe we'll get to this, but I actually don't think they're proof standards at all. I think they're epistemic standards in the law, but I don't think they're standards of proof. And I think it's a mistake to, to call it that. So, okay, that's like the quantificational analysis of legal standards of proof. It has some, now we remember that lottery paradox. So we can create a kind of lottery paradox for legal standards of proof. How? Well, suppose that there's an event venue with a gig on, so a band on stage, and that they, uh, they don't have a ticketing system or it stops working. And so people just start gate crashing. They just start entering. And suppose there's a, a 
hundred people in the crowd and we know that 65 of them gate crashed. Well, now if we pick some random person, preponderance of the evidence is that they gate crashed because 65 out of hundred of them gate crashed. So more than half gate crashed. So it seems like just that evidence of knowing that they were in the crowd and that 65% of the crowd gate crashed means that you know of any arbitrary person based just on that evidence that they've preponderance the evidence uh, well you know that they more that they probably gate crashed if the preponderance of the evidence just means given the evidence available probably p and that means that that evidence stand uh, satisfies that legal standard of proof preponderance of the evidence and so now the event venue uh, can uh, the owners of the event venue can now take any particular individual to court and sort of sue them for gate crashing and there are similar cases like that where somebody's hit by a bus and they can't tell, or say a taxi, and they can't tell the color of the taxi, but there's only two taxi companies in town, red taxi company and green taxi company. And then 60% of the taxis are operated by the red taxi company and the other 40% are by the blue taxi company. So then can the woman who was hit by the taxi just say, well, it must probably it was the red taxi company because there's more red taxis. So that's an, another kind of example of a, a proof paradox kind of example. So now we can take the, all the insights that happened over decades of epistemology talking about the lottery paradox and say, well, now how does this apply to legal standards of proof? In what way are legal standards of proof similar or different from the epistemic thresholds governing whether we know that our ticket didn't win, whether we can throw out a ticket, whether we can assert that our ticket didn't win and so on. So that's one kind of example where it's a very common example of how we can take a debate in epistemology and then transfer it to the law. Similarly, what I was talking about character evidence earlier, character evidence, well, character comes up in philosophy because there are these debates about, well, are characters stable? Are characters really good predictors of behavior? And that has a bearing on virtue theory in ethics. A lot of those debates can then be transferred over to the legal case about character evidence law. So that's a very common pattern, is the taking a debate in philosophy and epistemology and then seeing how it illuminates um, uh, these debates in law. But it's a mutual illumination because now by doing some work about the, the legal case, we can now begin to better understand the epistemic debates, the more abstract epistemic debates. And then the other way around, the other thing that you mentioned is, well, do you ever look at the actual legal cases and start there? I think it's less common, but I think Yes, especially the more looking at very specific legal cases is less common. But for example, it does happen. It, and for example, in a recent paper, I found a case where there was, um, it seems like a fictional case, but it really is true. The identical twins, uh, there was identical twins and one of them committed a series of stranger rapes and DNA evidence was at the scene. And they did the DNA test. And so based on the DNA test, the police were extremely confident, extremely confident that it was one of the two identical twins. But at the time, no DNA test could distinguish identical twins um, based on DNA um, of the relevant kind. They can now, some tests, not only one test, I think, but uh, there's a question about whether that test is, is admissible Actually, because even if you, the test exists in science, there's a question about whether it's admissible evidence because you need to have enough trust in the science for it to then count as admissible. But at the time, there wasn't, the test wasn't even developed. So the police knew, knew that it was the, the crime was committed by one of two identical twins, but they didn't know which one and they didn't have any other evidence. And so they didn't arrest either twin, saying, well, we don't have any corroborating evidence, so we can't arrest. And then what happened was an accomplice who was also um, one of the, the people committing the, the rape was arrested later. And as part of his plea bargain, he said, yeah, this is the person who did it. It was this brother, not the other brother. And so then they arrested the guy and eventually he was, he was found guilty. But I look, at, I look at that case and I say, well, hang on a minute. Is it really, the, were the police actually correct that they need corroborating evidence in order to issue an arrest? Given that arrest is governed by um, probable cause, then does, does, do we need corroborating evidence to have like reasonable suspicion and probable cause? And I look at that question and I say, no. 
And the reason, and then the, the answer to sort of why I say no is what is the nature of corroborating evidence and what is the nature of reasonable suspicion and probable cause? And I say they're not actually proof standards, so you don't even need corroborating evidence. Even if you need corroborating evidence for legal proof, which is a, um, an open question, but even if you do, reasonable suspicion and probable cause actually aren't standards of proof. They're not proving anything. They're just saying you need a, evidence of a certain kind or quality, but that's very different from making an, a verdict. Whereas all the other things, the legal standards of proof, they're verdicts about how the world is, even if they're quite low, like preponderance of the evidence, it's still saying probably the world is like this. Reasonable suspicion is just, it's about the quality of the evidence you have. Is it the, do you, is your suspicion a reasonable one? So that's an example of how you can um, start with a real, a real life case to try to illuminate the nature of, in this case, probable cause and corroborating evidence. So that's really interesting because now you have like kind of like both ways. And I, I guess this is a common like theme throughout philosophy is that philosophy and whatever field you're applying it to, they work uh, like cotan like they, co they work together. Right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen I've heard from uh, like basically everyone I've interviewed and they're all like, yeah, we like philosophy aids maybe like the sciences or whatever field they're looking at. But sciences also aid philosophy in, in certain research. So like, I guess the biggest example could probably be like consciousness research using like neural neural activity to kind of guide how consciousness research in the philosoph philosophical field is, is working, right? Compared to like how it's working in like the neurobiological field, right? So it's really interesting to see that's also the case here in legal epistemology. Um, and I guess I, I, I might just conclude to myself that it's in every field for philosophy at this point. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting. And also kind of doing the reverse logic where you start from one and then go to the other it seems that maybe it's more frequent to start from epistemological view and then apply it to something to kind of gauge um, your understanding of the ep epistemological uh, assumption you're making or whatever you're exploring um, but obviously it's also possible vice versa um, so that's interesting to explore as well but I'm also kind of curious now like we've introduced early we've talked about how both of these things work together um, and you know both of them uh, can can happen in both different ways, like i.e. going from epistemological to the legal and then also going vice versa. But how does the, your work get handled in legal, uh, like in the legal areas, right? If we've come to this conclusion, um, does it get like used um, or, or like, I mean, I wanna actually probably refrain from using conclusions given that it's philosophy, but um, you know, like whatever your work is like, is it used in conferences or in like real legal changes um, to kind of change laws or like how legal battles operate? Like what is the kind of like scope of the work that you're doing? Um, because I've heard from a lot of people that, you know, or a lot of philosophers that philosophers should be taken more like, you know, hardly and like strictly into more consideration. Do you feel like that's the same thing in, in this field at all? Yeah, I think it really, deeply has applications. Like, I think it's a really valuable area of philosophy for that reason, um, be because it can really have these effects. So that that example that I just used of, of the police not arresting, I mean, if, if my theory is correct, it's really showing like why the police were incorrect, that they need corroborating evidence to arrest. And so if police genuinely believe that they need corroborating evidence to arrest, then this work can be like, it could affect police training to explain like, no, you really only need one piece of evidence. You, you, the single piece of evidence can do it, can justify an arrest. It might be worth noting though, in that case, that maybe the police would have arrested the suspect if they actually <laughs> wanted to or cared to, because it was really strong evidence. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it was kind of strange, right? Because one of the, of the ones they knew was innocent and one, one they didn't. One they, one they knew was guilty, one they knew was innocent, they just didn't know which way around. But yeah, so I mean, th these kinds of cases, like showing, explaining to police officers why, proving to police officers why they, they don't need corroborating evidence to arrest can have real ramifications. I think the, the closest I've come to, to um, so far, to that kind of thing is I met with lawmakers in New York to talk about rape, um, sort of how to, secure more convictions in cases of rape because it's very hard to prove rape. I mean, it often comes down to these she said, he said cases and there's a lot of doubt about those, a lot of misunderstanding about those. And so they were asking about how to, they might be able to change laws. And one thing that I was sort of saying, because they were talking about, could we change the, make some change to the legal standard of proof in, in operation? And I was saying, that's 
a really big ambitious change and there might be these other things that could be done instead like having people better educated about rape myths so rape myths are things that are widely held like widely believed but that aren't true about rape and a lot of them seed doubt about rape accusations and so things like well if it was real if it was really rape she would have reported it sooner or she wouldn't have been nice to him afterwards she wouldn't have been friendly to him afterwards or she would have been like noticeably upset or she would currently look different like she would currently be behaving differently like she would be upset in the witness stand or something like that looking upset in the witness stand and so these kinds of things are rape myths and they're pernicious because they can see doubt so then the jurors or in everyday life ordinary people will think well then it wasn't rape because if it was rape she would have acted differently and so a lot of my own work is tackling those rape myths saying like here's why this these things this kind of conduct this kind of behavior these kind of patterns aren't actually evidence against a rape occurring so to the lawmakers in new york one thing that they could do to try to secure more convictions for rape is to have um uh, programs in place to try to undermine those rape myths. So perhaps some training for the jurors and so on, I think those kinds of things. And that wouldn't take too much change in the sense that that wouldn't be some big overhaul of what kinds of evidence is admissible or what kinds of legal standards of proof govern the case. It's just what kinds of, you know, uh, implementations are there for undermining rape myths in the jurors and the judges and the lawyers for that matter, what, and legal training. So that's a, a kind of example. And another place that my work is quite applied is I'm my current, I'm currently an ACLS fellow, American Council for Learned Societies, on a project that's looking at what standard of proof should govern Title IX cases. So complaints of sexual misconduct in colleges and universities in the US. Should it be governed by the preponderance of the evidence, that kind of relatively low standard, or some higher standard like clear and convincing evidence? Um, and I look at sort of what kinds of evidence satisfy those cases and what kinds of evidence do we want to be the kind of evidence that somebody could be expelled or fired on so it's a very applied context okay that's really really interesting like kind of like two fields and i'm you know i'm you know the, the, the second half of it like you know, the latter part was about like the universities i mean that's a direct field in which i can kind of see how like this would play out i guess there'd be like kind of a lot of different um i guess maybe like cases for how, how like how high you want to set that threshold um, and then each one would have probably its pros and cons and kind of looking at different scenarios but i'm curious about like this uh what happened like in new york uh did they come to you or like did you have to reach out to like them or did they had had they read your research or something like that i'm curious kind of about that yeah it was through hi-fi nation which is a really lovely philosophy podcast so your listeners might also be interested in it and it's um do you know Hi-Fi Nation? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very popular one, I think. And they tell uh, they're a very talented um, host and they do philosophy in sort of story form. And so I did a, I was a guest on there when they were talking about proof, um, the proof paradox type cases and, and AI, uses of AI in and predictive policing. And then I did a public philosophy event and it stemmed out of the, with them, through them, and it stemmed out of the public philosophy event. Me too. Okay, that's really interesting because I feel like um, just personally, um, given that someone's put so much like time and research into like a field, like I feel that there couldn't be a better person to go to, to ask questions about legal changes, right? Given that like, there is so much research being done on like what what it means um, to what it means to kind of do or, or like what it means to be in a legal field and have those questions being asked right like it's like going to the expert kind of in the scenario where it's like normally you'd think like the expert is like the lawyer right because they're the ones who are representing the people in battle but no in like when you're talking about kind of legal changes for what's needed in the case the expert really is a person doing that research, which would be, you know, legal epistemologist. So I think like that's kind of cool. Maybe like hopefully in the future, there's like some sort of looking at um, at you guys, like, you know, just to to ask questions about that, because I think those could those changes could be really, really, really uh, important and crucial. Right. Yeah. And I think you actually you, you're really stumbling. I mean, you know, raising this really difficult question about interdisciplinary work and applied work, which is 
a question of access, which is itself an epistemology issue, is an epistemic difficulty. How do you know who to talk to? My own work is extremely interdisciplinary because I'm looking at statistics and social science and the psychology of trauma and um, queer studies. And so it's really hard, and linguistics, and so it's really hard to know who I can ask to inform my research. But then once my research is sort of ready to be useful to people, how do I get it out there? Like, how do people know that I'm working on these, you know, writing a book about she said, he said cases and writing papers about um, the, effects, the effects of the Me Too movement? And I think that's a really difficult epistemic question about how do we sort of find each other? How do people hook up in, the, in these kind of intellectual, you know, if, if it's just in, if I'm just in philosophy, I know how to contact the people in philosophy, but how do I contact say the lawmakers and how do they know how to contact me? And I think that's a really important um, service that public philosophy, so things like this very podcast um, that you're running can do is to help people that wouldn't otherwise know about each other, learn about each other. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, public philosophy is kind of like the like is really really crucial, especially like I think at a at a youth level, um, which is kind of why this podcast exists in the first place. Um, but I think um, you know there's a lot of cool work that's being done, but you know the access is definitely like an important important feature and like how how do we get that research out to the right people so that there can be actual changes? Because at the end of the day, it would be really really nice to see actual changes reflected into like the legal system because that's what hurts or harm so many people. And at the end of the day, you kind of want to help those people, given that we have so much research um, in this field. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I kind of want to move on now kind of to your paper, uh, you know, you were in a paper called um, Legal Burdens of Proof uh, and Statistical Evidence. And you kind of discuss this golden thread of criminal justice systems. What is that golden thread? And how is it, um, you know, how is it used? You know, I think, you know, that gold thread is co constantly heard in many shows, but like how, how, how do we use that in the court of law um, every, everywhere, I guess? Yeah, the golden thread. So innocent until proven guilty, the pres presumption of innocence, yes. And so this is this idea that sort of citizens and residents um, and co you know, compatriots, we sort of, and our formally our government is treating us as if we haven't committed the crime, as if we're innocent, unless the state proves otherwise. So in criminal cases, it's always the state against the individual. In civil cases, it can be two, two citizens, two individuals, two residents against each other. And so there's this really deep asymmetry there where this that, that comes out of that. So a whole bunch of stuff sort of flows from that. So one is this asymmetry. The state has to prove that the defendant is guilty to that legal standard of proof. The defendant doesn't have to prove that they're innocent. So they don't have a burden of proof. The burden of proof is on the state. There are some little kind of, you know, sub questions that the, the burden of proof can then fall to the defendant. So if they're saying like an insanity defense, then the burden of proof to prove that defense is on the, um, the defendant. The state doesn't have to prove that they're not insane. They have to prove that they are insane. But for the actual, like, did they commit the crime? So did they commit all the elements of the crime? the state has to prove it and the defendant doesn't have to prove that they did not. They just have to defend themselves against the, the sort of case from the state. And so then some other rights sort of flow from this, so like rights to have representation, for example, but also the rights to wear a suit in court as opposed to be wearing a kind of prison jumpsuit to sort of look guilty. Um, in some cases, some of these, and also the right to not be incarcerated before you're found guilty and uh, or before you're tried, before you're charged. And so some of these rights in practice, perhaps they're, they're not entirely respected. So for example, the perp walk is an American invention, really. It doesn't have to exist. The perp walk is when somebody has been arrested, often somebody high profile, and they are walked from the prison cell that they're being held to the courthouse where then they're going to formally, as a sort of matter of the institutional formality, going to hear their, their charge. The perp walk happens outside so that the um, newspapers can take photographs so that it can go in the, the newspapers, sell more newspapers with the person sort of with their hands sort of uh, handcuffed behind their back and police escorting them. And you, you're probably quite familiar with those images. That itself is a piece of theatre. It's a piece of theatre that's devised by the police and the prosecutors working together because that's the, they're on the same sort of side. They want to be, have more uh, to find more people guilty. 
But the perp walk doesn't have to exist. I mean, they could instead go in a vehicle or they could go underground between the buildings, which, you know, because they're very often hooked up, those cells um, in these cork houses, of course. Um, or it could be sort of done at a time when the, the journalists aren't waiting around, right? How the journalists know when the perp is gonna, the perp is gonna be walking. So perp walk is a, is a kind of piece of theater. And it seems like it may, it's not strictly speaking incompatible with this golden thread of presumption of innocence, but it's it's making the person it's intentionally making the person look guilty. And then, so a lot of these sort of rights, there may be sort of in practice that's sort of disrespected in certain respects. Another really important part of this is the Blackstone ratio, which is a separate kind of principle, but it's this idea that it's better that 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent man suffer. And people would sort of say different numbers and give different justifications. But it's this basic idea that incarcerating or finding an innocent person guilty or punishing an innocent person, there's something really bad about that. And it'd be better if the person, you know, the sort of people actually did in fact commit the crime, they go free, that that's better than having somebody who's in fact innocent be punished or incarcerated. That's the Blackstone ratio. And that Blackstone ratio helps explain why the legal standard of proof is so high. So beyond reasonable doubt is really high. It's not just sort of like 60% likelihood or something like that. It's really high. And the thought is, because there'd be something really bad about having somebody who's innocent sort of, well, they met the standard of proof. The standard of proof, proof was like, yeah, that evidence was pretty good. <laughs> if like that's all it took, if that's all it takes, you'd have more innocent people. Uh, in prison. Okay, definitely. That makes sense. Um, you know, I, I think we, we all have first seen those photos, um, but also like we all we all know the golden thread and how that's kind of used as like, even in like classrooms, even like you're like teachers will even repeat that saying like you're innocent until proven guilty in, in terms of like doing something bad or right? in terms of cheating, right? They always have like this concept that you're innocent and I won't believe anything um, kind of coming like at a fair level, like no biases or anything like that coming in. And I think that's that's important. And I think like the black blackstone ratio also is kind of kind of important. Uh, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, I mean, I think there's probably a huge debate about it, but like um, I think it does make sense in theory, but I could also see why it wouldn't make sense as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, like that golden thread is kind of a golden thread for a reason. Um, so like it, it, it makes sense. But I'm actually kind of curious, uh, you know, on further along in your paper, you say that these legal standards of proof cannot be properly interpreted in interpreted in quantitative terms. Mm -hmm. um, so why is that the case necessarily? And what exactly is a competing proposal for a non -qual uh, quantitative epistemic condition on satisfying legal burdens of proof? Um, and then also, if you know, can explain kind of the difference between quantitative terms and non quantitative terms um, in this area. Yeah, sure. Good. So, yeah, maths is very powerful. And I think that power has a kind of seductive allure. So what I mean by that is if you can quantify the thing, you can do maths on it. If you can do maths on it, you can do a lot. But the problem is, what if you shouldn't be quantifying it? So you see this in, in ethics with value, moral value. If you can quantify moral value, well, hey ho, you can get all kinds of principles because now you've got this thing that you can do maths on. And so a lot of versions of utilitarianism, consequentialism, is this idea that we have um, moral value is something like units of pleasure and then disvalue is units of pain. And it's units and it's quantifiable. And so now we can like do maths on it. So like three giving three people 10 units of pleasure is worth 30 and that's better than giving two people five units of pleasure which is only worth 10. And so it's better to do this act A than act B. The problem is, or can moral value be quantified? And so you have a similar question arising in various areas of epistemology, non-legal epistemology, just epistemic value in general, and also legal epistemology, legal standards of proof. So can what legal standards of proof are be quantified? And in general, I'm very suspicious of quantification. And that's why I call it the seductive allure. Because I think that, if, you know, don't quantify the unquantifiable. If something can be quantified, great. <laughs> like, you know, I do statistical uh, inference, like I, I you know, work on the foundation of statistical inference, and I have this background in, in maths and physics. It's like, if you can quantify it, great. The problem is that you might not be able to quantify it. And so uh, people like to gloss these legal standards of proof as these kind of numerical values, as I was saying earlier, 50% for proponents of the evidence. 
really high, like 90, 95% for beyond reasonable doubt. And in the middle there, 70, 75% for clear and convincing evidence. But I'm very suspicious that they can be given this quantificational analysis. And one reason is the proof paradox type cases I was mentioning earlier. So the gate crasher case with the music venue and the taxi case that I quickly glossed. And you have the prison yard case where, so there's a hundred prisoners in a yard and 99 of them riot and injure a guard. And then the one refuses to riot and stands with their back against the wall. And if there's like CCTV footage, so security camera footage, you can pick up that, the 99 of them were rioting and one wasn't, but it can't tell which one was the one that refused to riot. So on that evidence, could you find them beyond reasonable doubt guilty? So could you find them criminally guilty for any particular individual? And I argue, no. So one reason is, well, what if you then did it reiterated, if you iterated that, so you did it for every, if you repeated that. So for everything, so you, for this arbitrary prisoner who was there, you find them guilty. For this arbitrary prisoner who is there, you find them guilty. Eventually you'll find a hundred out of a hundred of them guilty, but you know that one of them was innocent. So you know that you found uh, one person who is uh, guilty, it was is innocent, you found them guilty. But if the legal standards of proof is a number, then it's, it's lower than 99% because 99% is very high. And so it means you have satisfied that legal standard of proof. It just seems implausible that that kind of evidence is meeting beyond reasonable doubt. And another kind of reason that I think numbers can't capture everything that there is to, to say about uh, evidence and legal standards of proof relates to corroboration that I was talking about earlier. So corroborating, is, corroborating evidence is supporting evidence. So evidence that supports something that you already have evidence for. So some kind of confirmation. So you already have some evidence for P and you get some more evidence for P, that's corroborating evidence. And I think one reason for thinking that this can't be captured, that legal standards proof and their percent value of corroborating evidence can't be captured by numbers is you can have evidence like that DNA evidence, not the one with the twins, ignore the twins one, just DNA evidence, can make it really, really, really probable that the person say committed the burglary, really, really, really high with DNA evidence. And now suppose you also get the person, suppose that the, the burglary was um, stole a watch, and somebody says, oh, I caught being a fence, like selling on the stolen goods and says, oh yeah, yeah, it was Jim. Jim sold me the watch. And the Jim was the one who was, who was sort of caught with the cold hit DNA evidence. Well, that second piece of evidence is extremely powerful because now you have all this DNA evidence and you have this other person, this informant. It means that, well, now you're really sure that it was Jim. But there wasn't enough space on the number line to explain why that second piece of evidence was so powerful because you were already like 0.9999999% yeah, 0.99999 confident that he did it. But you get this second piece of evidence. So there's just not enough space between 0.99999 and one to capture or to explain or to, to sort of vindicate. Now the difference if, if, when you've received that second piece of evidence of just how much more confident you are that Jim did it. So that's kind of some of my reasons for suspicion about the quantificational analysis. So what are the alternatives? <laughs> so qualitative analysis, like non-quantificational analysis. My own account of legal standards of proof is based on ruling out relevant alternatives. So again, that's taking this theory in epistemology, the relevant alternatives theory of knowledge, and then taking all those insights and all that apparatus and applying it to the legal case. So I say, what people wanted to say about knowledge being the state of we've ruled out all the relevant alternatives, all the things, all the other error possibilities. I haven't said what that means. <laughs> so um, take that infrastructure, that apparatus, that framework, that is what, whether or not that is what models knowledge, that's what models legal standards of proof. And it's kind of in the name, beyond, reason, beyond all reasonable doubt. It's like, we have you ruled out all of the reasonable alternatives? And I say that what it is to be a reasonable alternative is not a matter of quantification. It's something else. So I haven't really said what it is. I've just said that I give an alternative model for it. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that was very satisfying. No, it definitely makes sense. I mean, to an extent, it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, it's kind of uh, like, I, I understand this concept that like, there are non-quantifiable things. Um, you know, like the example it gave, like within like the number line, there's no space between 0 0.99999 uh, and one. And, um, and I was, you know, I am also kind of like, I have 
I like math a lot. So like I also try to reduce things to math whenever I have the ability to. And so in my mind, while you were like narrating the example, I was like, okay, so like I'm pretty confident right now. And then you gave the second example and I'm like, okay, I'm like really, really confident now, but like, I don't know what the distinction is between those two, right? Um, and so like, I guess it makes sense to need a qualitative um, you know, account or like some sort of theory that is able to account for that. Um, and, you know, although it's just, you know, not looking at the quantitative, I mean, it was, there wasn't like the most detailed explanation of it, but I think that is at least an important question to like explore, um, you know, maybe like, I don't know how the research is on that, but, you know, maybe if there's even like a lot of different qualitative um, explorations, then I guess that's really interesting. Um, I kind of want to move on towards like the end. You have like you know, two, two more questions, but, I, you know, there, there has been a lot of controversy recently um, you know, between some some tr some pretty important trials, and you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier about juries, but you know, ever since the the Cowherton House case, um, you know, where he was acquitted of you know five original charges, um, there has been like a lot of questions about how juries are kind of you know hailed as the democratic components of the system, um, but also maybe that they're are, are biased in some sort of ways. Are those questions ever entangled with epistemology? Um, and, and are like questions of the epistemology of juries, uh, you know, and, and bias, are those like all epistemological questions and is there exploration in your field of the, you know, importance of juries, et cetera? Yeah, definitely there is for sure. Um, lots of, lots of questions. So many questions are raised about juries. It's, it's a big, rich topic. So for example, you say with jury of your peers and now, um, during the kind of the selection of the juries, the jurors, then the lawyers might say, well, so suppose it's say a sexual violence case. The jurors might say, well, has anyone here been a victim of sexual violence? And the people that put their hands up, they can be struck from the jury pool, leaving now people that haven't been victims of sexual violence, or at least one uh, people who don't say that they have. Well, so now it's it's a selection effect. So what is it about the jury of the, the the jury of your peers that means that if it's a case of sexual violence then the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator the person on trial is sort of having all the the victims struck as not peers for example so the, the those kinds of questions and you have this with capital cases cap cases where the one potential punishment is capital punishment execution by the state one of the very first questions they'll ask is well <laughs> Is that, could you find the person guilty given that one of the potential punishments is capital punishment? And now anyone who would be a conscious objector to that, I said, well, I couldn't do that. They're gonna be struck. Well, so now if you have a capital case, it's not um, a sort of a arbitrary selected set of people in the jury pool. The only ones left are the people who are okay with, uh, not just okay with capital punishment existing, but being people who, who could say, yes, I could find them guilty. Now, I'm not saying what the solution to these problems should be, but that's at least some questions that are raised. Like how does that affect the jury pool? But when we're looking at that, and there's lots of biases of the juries and there's issues about the jurors just not being able to follow the complexities of say DNA evidence, for example. But we always have to ask, well, what's the alternative? Because we can see these problems in, in, in philosophy when it's very abstract, we can just, look at the problems and say, well, there are all these problems. But now when we're looking at policy, there's always this question, well, what are we going to do? What should the alternative be? And so are juries better than judges? Are juries better than computers? I mean, computers can't do something like this, but um, are juries better than randomizing devices? And so, and, and there might be other, there's, the better than doesn't necessarily just have to mean more likely to get it right. There's also these other values of jurors and disvalues of jurors. So one is uh, giving a sense of public trust in the system and, and sort of being invested in the system. So a randomizing device, I mean, people just would, wouldn't respect it sort of, even if it managed to be more reliable, it was a weighted randomizing device or something. So it was more reliable than jurors. I'm not sure, you know, then there would be this sort of a problem with trust in the system if people used it. But also jurors can have these other values like, aspirational about what kind of society do we want to have. So the idea that we are living together as citizens, as residents of a nation. And so one of the duties that we have and one of the rights that we have is 
being tried by a jury of our peers and being eligible to sit on a jury, it might help people cultivate certain kinds of virtues. And it might sort of send, have a certain, embody a certain kind of message of, well, you are, you're not just merely a consumer or merely a worker, you are in fact a citizen. And that comes with these certain duties. And so we expect you to be sort of educated in certain ways, for example. And that it's part of what it is to be living together. And sometimes when juries seem to have the wrong result, a result where people go, how can this possibly be? Um, sometimes it's actually that the laws are the problem, not the jurors, or what was the evidence was presented at the court, or how the judges, how the lawyers performed. And so a case where the laws might be a problem is you see this with, say, for example, grand juries, when their police have used lethal force against, say, unarmed suspects in attempts to arrest, where maybe the suspect was fleeing or something like that. And then there'll be a grand jury saying, you know, which will be a case saying, well, is there a case that can now go to court? And the grand jury will say no. And then people will say, how, how can this be? The person, the, obviously the police killed this person. The evidence is there, it's been recorded. This jury, what are they thinking? And the answer is often well, the jury got it right. The problem, if there is one, and I think there is, is the laws, <laughs> which is that the police are allowed to use lethal court lethal force in a lot of cases where they probably shouldn't be. That's definitely interesting. I mean, I think there's like a lot of philosophy to explore kind of in just understanding like the concept of juries and like uh, different alternatives for it. I mean, you're really like, right? Like, what is the alternative? I mean, honestly, I haven't, I, I've just like kind of briefly looked at it given the current events that are kind of happening around America, but I haven't, you know, given a thought obviously to kind of exploring my own like theory of like what could be an alternative. Um, but yeah, definitely there are other problems that could also arise. Like, I don't think it's just like the juries. I think it's an intersection of kind of a lot of, a lot of different concepts coming together, be, being shown through juries and kind of like that's where you can kind of understand maybe like the impact of race or the impact of appearance all of those things as well play a really big role in juries so i think it's kind of like it, it's a, it's an interesting feature or interesting area given that like a lot of different concepts come together and you can kind of explore how that works in a public audience that's kind of like filtered or randomized in some sort of way right so i think it's like kind of cool to see that and kind of cool to explore like the different like different uh, specifics, but also like just general top understanding, uh, understanding of how juries work. Um, so yeah, that's like really cool. And I'm glad like there's, there's some philosophy there because I'm definitely going to want to read up on that. But to wrap up this podcast episode, I wanted to ask you um, how students who are interested in, you know, taking maybe law in their future or an, even activism to a certain extent can utilize legal epistemology uh, to help them in their future. What are some benefits that students can gain, whether they be in high school or maybe even like grad students or college students, um, by learning more about legal epistemology um, and kind of just the field of epistemology in general? How can that help them in their future? Yeah, great. Well, I think it's a um, yeah, good question. So in general, I think learning philosophy is learning how to think well. And there's other ways to learn how to think well too, but, but philosophy is really good for just like thinking well, like give me your reasons and I'll give you some counter reasons and we'll figure out the best reasons and we'll figure out sort of what we should think. So it's really good at honing those cognitive skills. And epistemology is a study of how to think well. And so it's particularly effective, especially as we're going through this epistemic crisis of fake news and conspiracy theories, epistemic bubbles. So on social media, people just hearing sort of what they already believe because they filtered their friends um, according to these epistemic tribes, these epistemic communities. That's the epistemic bubbles. So there's all kinds of epistemic problems going on at the moment. So epistemology is a really good thing to study to better understand those, partly so people aren't victims of conspiracy theories and epistemic bubbles and gaslighting and so on. And um, uh, sort of vaccine hesitancy and so on. And so it can be good to help people think more clearly about topics, but then also the next stage is going ahead and making a difference. 
And so there are all these really applied relevant topics where people could then, students could be writing op-eds and in, in things in their student newspapers and local magazines and opinion pieces about, for example, the Rittenhouse trial and really using that clear thinking that they've learned and then helping other people understand the, the, the um, issues. And again, you have these feedback loops. And so by doing that, by engaging publicly, by um, having these kind of public debates, including in, for example, op-eds and student newspapers, people can better understand. And so you get these nice cycles of understanding better. The other thing is for people that want to go to law school, <laughs> like this could be a really important, um, this could be like a really valuable way to sort of um, enhance an application to law school, but then also something to be working on in law school, especially if a part of what you have to do in law school is some boring kind of rote stuff that you just have to learn to pass the course. This could be a really nice way to also be doing philosophical engagement. So as you're learning, oh, what is the evidence law? You could also be thinking about, well, what justifies, if anything, the evidence law? Which parts of the evidence law are good or bad? And that's legal epistemology. And so, yeah, if you people for going into policy, going into law, also going into things like social work and crime um, and research, it's so interdisciplinary. So I think legal epistemology is really good for these reasons. That's awesome. You know, uh, if you are, you know, in any, like anyone who are like maybe a student or anyone applying to law school, definitely look into legal epistemology then. Um, and also like writing blogs or just kind of like op-eds on like what you personally think, I think reflectiveness in like the hyperpolarized state of America right now is really, really necessary. And, you know, just really good to kind of find your own voice. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Gardner, for, for your time today. I really learned a lot and I'm sure the audience did as well. And there's a lot of cool questions that anyone can learn or like, I guess, ask from just listening to this podcast. So thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much, Sarish. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. And thanks so much for the opportunity.